you want to turn in your Bibles to James 4 as we continue on, we're going to be picking up at verse 6. And again, we had uh, talked the last several weeks about um, Children's Church. Oh, Children's Church. They were running down That's right. Get out of here. They don't want to hear me. They have more fun downstairs. But I see a little a little change in James's um, oh message here. Maybe uh, he's been pretty rough on the Jerusalem church up to this point. Really, uh, there was problems in the church as we talked about last week. We sometimes like to romanticize the, the early church and say how wonderful things were, but really the early church has had uh, a lot of troubles, just like we do today. Uh, you can read through Corinthians and see that James was dealing with this in the Jerusalem church. And so there were struggles, and so James was talking about being doers of the word. He was talking about the things we think about, the things that we say, how we say things. He's been challenging us in a lot of different ways, and sometimes we can get in this mode where we're always correcting people, and people can start to uh, feel down about themselves, because as we hear these things, we see them in ourselves, we recognize in ourselves that Man, I'm struggling with these things. And James, all of a sudden, he's kicking into this, this mode, this wonderful uh, answer to the problems, which is grace. And so as we sit here today, I want you to, to really grasp out of this message, this wonderful gift that God has given us that is called grace. And grace, again, is receiving that which we do not deserve. It's a, it's a blessing. It's an unmerited favor of God. And really, it's the, the solution to the strife um, that we have in this world. And so, as we talked last week, sometimes in Christian circles, as uh, the war battles on, we fight with each other, and it, it can get nasty, and it can get very hurtful, and those hurts many times go deep. And so, James was talking about, and he really tells us that the solution uh, is humility. We need to be humble. And humble isn't something that we brag about, otherwise it's not really humility. And I think there was a, a song a long time ago called, Lord, It's Hard to Be Humble. I don't know if you ever heard that. Okay. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't even look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. <laughs> to know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. And that's sort of our method of being humble. I'm trying to be humble. You know, but I do so great things and this and that. The humility that James is talking about is the same one that Paul was talking about. Oh, wretched man that I am. See, we realize that without Christ, without God in our life, uh, we are really nothing. And that's why he tells us even that our, our works that we do, apart from Christ, it says are as filthy rags. And so we need this humility, and he's going to talk about this humility and this accompanies this great gift of grace that we have. And grace is just, it's, again, it's the greatest gift that God has ever given us. And so when we look at this, the first thing we need to have on our agenda and in our mindset is we need to get right with God. So even as we come to the Lord's table, we, we examine ourselves, we look at ourselves. And, and as the scriptures would say, Lord, search me and try me. If there be any vile way in me, any evil way in me, you know, Lord, help me. Help me get through that. And so we know that through that process we have repentance, we have forgiveness. But it's God's grace that covers all these things. And so he says, 
God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so this gift of grace has this requirement. It's nothing, again, that, that we do in our, our pride, but it's something that we do when we really recognize our brokenness apart from Christ. We look out in the world today, and I know sometimes we get angry at the things that we see, and, and there can be a righteous anger there, but we should also have pity and compassion because we see the lost that are leading the lost. We see those that they need Christ in their life. And we see the brokenness that goes there. And, and as D.L. Moody once said, but there by the grace of God go I. You know, the one thing I loved about D.L. Moody was that he took every opportunity, regardless of what was going on, to reach out to those that were hurting, those that were sinning, those that were in need of somebody just to, to listen or to um, really just share the gospel with them. And there's even that story from which that quote comes as he was uh, going into the backstage of a, a large auditorium where he was scheduled to speak, and he, he saw, I think it was a drunkard, or it was a down-and-outer anyways, in the alleyway as he was going. And as he stopped to talk, his men were like, no, you got to get in there waiting for you. And his answer was, no, but by the grace of God, go I. And he stopped and he talked with that man, and he shared the gospel message with that man. We need to have that in our life. We have to have that humility in our life that, that really says, but there, by the grace of God, go I. We can look and we can condemn and we can criticize a lot of things in, our li in the lives of those around us. But God tells us we examine ourselves. And so he says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So question one is, is, are you a proud person? Are you standing on that mountain of pride? And we talked a lot about that last week. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Pride is a... Is a, is a it's a monster. It's a monster in our lives. And even when we don't think we have it, I think we have it. I think we have um, come to the point of, of living in an affluent society where we have not only been deceived by a lot of things in the church, but we've even deceived ourselves into thinking that we're okay when there's still things in our lives that God desires to deal with. And so we find that the same Holy Spirit that convicts us of these things in our life, the same Holy Spirit that says, you know, this doesn't belong in my life, is the same Holy Spirit that empowers me by grace to live for God as I should. And so the Holy Spirit isn't just a disciplinarian in our life, it's also an encourager. And so as we rid ourselves of the ungodly things in our life, the Holy Spirit supplies us with the things that we need in our life to walk in a way that gives Him glory. And so it says He gives more grace. And that really stands in a strong contrast to the verse before. He resists the proud. So when we talk about that, we say that he resists the proud, we really need to look at our lives and say, you know, if I have that, is God resisting us? Am I arguing with God? Am I fighting with God? Am I hanging on to things that I shouldn't be, that God is trying to deal with me about? But if I get rid of those things, it says, but God gives more grace. He gives us not just a measure of grace. He gives us an abundant amount of grace in our life to cover those things, to give us strength and to take care of us the way that we should. And as I read through, and I, I like Spurgeon, as a lot of you know, I, I wish I could real, really read his whole sermon commentary on this because it's great, but I've limited myself to a few sentences here. He has so much to say that I just thought was so deep. I want to share some of it. It says, note that contrast. Note it always. Observe how weak we are and how strong he is. How proud we are. 
but how superior he is, how erring we are, and how infallible he is, how changing we are, and how unchangeable he is, how provoking we are, but how forgiving he is. Observe how in us there is only ill, and how in him there is only good. Yet our ill but draws his goodness forth, and still he blesses. Oh, what a rich contrast. I often say God uses me in spite of myself. I sometimes feel like I get more in the way of God and in the work he's doing uh, than I'm a, you know, more of a hindrance than a benefit. But the Holy Spirit uses us in spite of some things in our life. And it doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to those things in our life. But it means that as a child of God, God is at work in our life. And we can be encouraged by that. And James is really, I think, trying to uh, encourage his congregation, his, his followers, the Christians of that time, to say, listen, we don't have it all right. None of us do. But God is at work in us. And his grace is at work in us. And keep your eyes on him. And he goes on to say, sin seeks to enter. Grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get the mastery. But grace, which is stronger than sin, resists. It will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times and puts its foot on our neck. Grace comes to the rescue. Sin comes up like Noah's flood, but grace rides over the uh, mountaintops like Noah's ark. And so we see this grace. Grace is superior to anything that you are facing in this world today. Any struggles that you are in, any valleys that you are in, any contemplations that you are in, grace is greater than all those things. We sing that song, grace is greater than all our sin. Grace is just huge. And so he says, do you suffer from spiritual, spiritual poverty? And we talked about this. You may be saying, I don't experience God's grace. I, I, don't, I don't feel God's grace. I don't know God's grace in my life. He goes on to say this, and it makes perfect sense. Do you suffer from spiritual poverty? It is your own fault, for he giveth more grace. If you have not got it, it is not because it is not to be had, but because you have not gone for it. See, as a Christian, and as Paul would say, oh, wretched man that I am, when we look at that, I say I'm broken, I'm frail, I'm, I'm, I'm the scum or whatever we want to identify ourselves at. And we look at God's grace and we say, yet God looked down and he finds value in us. He finds value in you and finds value in me. And he wants to redeem us and he wants to mold us and make us into what he wants us to have. And so it says here that this grace, though, only comes... By him. It only comes to the humble because grace and pride are eternal enemies. So if you're standing in your pride, and we talked about the mountain of pride, and you say, I'm going to die on this mountain. If we're standing on that mountain willing to die, grace is going to have no effect in our life. We need to understand. We need to have our eyes open. And that's why Jesus said many times through the gospel, having eyes they do not see, having ears they do not hear. It wasn't that they were blinded to what was going on around. It was that they were spiritually blinded to what God was doing and what God could do. We sit in our sin. We sit in our ways. And we see the forgiveness that can be offered as a child of God. Why would we not go after that? We say we don't have grace, but yet are we willing to walk humbly according to God in his word? And so he tells us, but uh, he gives grace to the humble. So he's really telling us that, that in our humility or our wretchedness or our brokenness that 
it's nothing that we are doing. It's not like, okay, all of a sudden I'm getting humble and now I earn or I deserve God's grace. No, it says when we have that humble and contrite spirit that I've just placed myself in the position to receive God's grace. It is initiated by God and God alone. That's why for salvation, it says we are saved by grace, not of works, lest any of us could boast about it. It is a free gift, a gift of God. And so he says, therefore, submit to God. And so in light of the, the, the gift of grace that God gives us, he gives us this thing that says submit to him. It's a word we don't like today. It's a word that, that as, as men we don't like, we like to be our own boss, our own man. It's ones that women don't like because sometimes it's been abused through uh, descriptions of scripture, through marriage and different things like that. And submitting somehow makes us to seem weaker and, and lesser. And it's not all that, but it is just letting ourselves go and letting God have control. And so as believers, and that's the struggle we have in our life, is to let God have control of our life. That's the humility, saying, you know what? God knows better for me than what I know. God has a plan that is much better than mine. Because as the scripture says, there's a way that seems right unto the man, but its end leads to destruction. Look at how many lives are getting destroyed around us as we look. People without Christ. Christians who are not following Jesus. And we see the lives that are in turmoil and they're upside down and the, and the terrible things that are going on. And we look in the world today and, and we hear a lot about the rights of, of men and, and women, right? We have the abortion thing going on. You know, that's my right. That's my body. That's my choice. We have, you know, the other abominations that are going on. I have a right to be married to who I want to be married to. If it's same sex, if it's this or it's that, I have a right to all these things. But what we forget is that the rights of God are at the very base of everything. We forget about the ultimacy of God, which is the highest calling of all. His rights are the ones that, that flowed through the universe before man even had breath. And it is his rights that are solemn in all the universe and all around. And it is his rights at which all other rights are to be subject to. So as a believer, when you speak about your rights and those things, are they in line with God's rights? Because God's rights are the things that are the most solemn. And as we look at humility, that's where it brings us. I may think that I'm right, but when I compare my thoughts and my actions and my ways to what God's word says, where am I? Where am I in the scheme of things? And so we need to submit to God. And why do we submit to God? Well, for one, he's our creator. He created us. If you're sitting here today with, with your husband or your wife, your children, your friends, your family, and even if you're not sitting here with them and you have them in, in your life, you look around. God created all them, but he created you. So God is my creator. He is my master. And so that's the first reason why I should submit to him. He is the one who has given me breath. He has given me and made me and, and uh, you know, whatever he has done. He has done it for me. And so that's the first reason why we would submit to him. We submit to him because his, his rule or his word of God is good for us. That's submission. We don't want to submit to God's word. Why? Because sometimes we think that the world's ways are better. We might think our ways are better. We think God's ways are too tough. I would challenge each and every one of you to look at God's word. There is not one thing in God's word that for the believer, if he follows, that is going to cause any damage or harm to you. God's word is for the good of those who seek and follow him. God's word is good. And so we need to submit to it because it is for us and it is 
because of us that he has given us these things. It is the right thing to do and it is what is best for us. As you raise your children, you raise them in the best ways that you can. If you have a good, healthy family, you raise them in the best ways, teaching them what is good. Well, that's what God's word is for us. We are his children. He says, these things are good, and we need to submit to those things. We need to submit to him because resistance really to him is futile. You can fight God this whole lifetime, and that's fine, but the ultimate end of it is what? Every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can resist for a time, but it's really futile. Eventually, you're going to have to re, uh, submit to him anyway. The thing is, what side of glory are you going to be submitting to him on? God desires us now to be submissive to him for what he has done for us. It's also necessary for salvation. Some people think, well, I'll just come to God on my terms. When I'm ready, you know, when the time is right, when I sowed my oats, or else I'm going to come to God this way, I just need to do this or do that. We don't dictate to God how we come to salvation. God has to take dictated to us how we come to salvation and so we submit our lives to him salvation isn't just a a statement that we make it isn't just coming to church it isn't just having a bible submission to god is having communion with him it's a it's a personal relationship with jesus christ and so we need that it's necessary for salvation submission is necessary for salvation and because it gives us a peace with god and it's not the peace of the world. We can still have struggles, and we will have struggles in this world, but it's the peace that's in our heart. Do you have peace with God in your heart, in your life? Regardless of the turmoil that's going on outside, I often like to use Paul as that example because before Paul was saved, he had everything that the world said that you needed. He had power, he had position, authority. He had all these things, probably the riches of the world. And he came to know Christ, and what happened? All those things were taken from him. But he says, I count that all as rubbish. I count that all as dung for the excellence of knowing Christ. See, Paul before Christ didn't have peace inside. He had everything that the world said would make you happy, but he was missing something inside. And he accounted for that later. But after Christ, his world sort of turned upside down around him, but inside he had peace. Do you have that peace that surpasses all understanding? Spurgeon had one more thing to say, and it was this. I desire to whisper one little truth in your ear, and I pray that it may startle you. You, you are submitting even now. You say, no, I am not. I am the Lord of myself. I know you think so, but all the while you are submitting to the devil. The verse before us hints to this. Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you do not submit to God, you never will resist the devil. And you will remain constantly under his power. Which shall be your master, God or the devil? For one of these must. No man is without a master. So that's something to think about. When Jesus looks down upon us, when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see white or black. He doesn't see economical status or this status or, or all the things that we like to divide about. What he sees is he says, I see my children and I see the lost. I see the saved and I see the lost. And so he's really telling us here, if you are his child, you are under his authority. If you're not, it says you are under Satan's authority. There is no neutral ground in this. You are either one or you are the other. And that's what he's telling us. And so he tells us this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so to solve this problem of, of carnality that we have in the world today, seeking after those 
things of the world and why the world likes those things, and the strife that our carnality causes, because really all strife, or most all strife, is caused from carnality. I want my way, I want my things, I want you know this and that and the other thing, and so we fight. And we really found that if, as we spoke last week, if two believers are really in tune with the Holy Spirit, there is not going to be conflict between them, because our spirit is not divided. The spirit isn't one way for one person and a different way for another person. And so we know that we can have that, that, that harmony that goes on. But if we want to uh, attack this thing of strife and carnality in our lives, we are told by James anyways that we need to resist the devil. Now I know there's Christians around that say, well, you know what, I'm ready to fight the devil. Bring it on, Satan, they'll, they'll say, or they get a little arrogant. And I'm going to say, don't do that. That is not a good thing to do. Satan has been around uh, for eons. He is good at what he does. He wants to seek to, to kill and destroy and deceive you. He is a master at what he does. Now, before I was saved, I always had this picture as I resisted God before I was saved that I always felt like Satan was behind me, sort of like pushing me into a fight. If you were ever in a, a graveyard school brawl, you know what I'm talking about. And it was like Satan was pushing me from behind saying, go ahead, you can stand up to him. Tell him about your rights and the things that you want and, and all those things. And I always felt like Satan was behind me pushing when I got saved, I got a whole different picture of this. And it wasn't that I was facing Satan and, and God was behind me saying, you can stand up to him, go ahead and do this. No, God came before me. And he just sort of held me back. And he says, what do you got to say, Satan? See, God is my shield. God is my defender. Jesus Christ died for me. He is my protection. I don't have to go out and do the battle. He says resist. That means stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your beliefs. Stand firm in the word of God. God will do the battles. The battle belongs to the Lord. We know that. And it says that our battles, you know, aren't against flesh and blood, but against spiritual palities and princes of this world and the princes of the air. They're, they're against spiritual things that are going on. Guess what? I don't see spiritual things. I can see the results of spiritual things. So I just trust in the Lord. I stand firm in God's word and what he has taught us and what he has showed us in his word. And he does the battles. We just need to resist. And it says the promise is what? That Satan will flee from us. If we stand firm, the promise is that he will flee from us. And so, as we do this, we can set Satan running just by standing firm. Well, how do we do that? We do that because we come in the authority of Jesus' name. We come in the power of Jesus' name. We come for what he died upon Calvary and rose from the grave for. And that is an authority and that is a power that Satan has nothing to, to say about at all. And so we come in that authority. And that's why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. If you're being tempted, if you are going through struggles, if you are you know, doing battles, I always say pray in Jesus' name because that is where our power, that is where our authority is at. And so we have that promise that comes in our life. You know, Hermes wrote this. He says, the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he can never pin him. So when you think about that, that's sort of the Christian life. When we get saved, our battles aren't done, okay? Ultimately they are, but not in this world. And so Satan continually is trying to look for our weaknesses. He's trying to, to, to get us to submit. If you've ever watched wrestling, you know, they want to get you in that submission hold. Say, uncle, Satan's going to wrestle with us our whole life. But if you're a follower of Christ, it says he can never pin you. 
You're going to have those battles, but the ultimate victory is going to go to you. And so he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that is both an invitation and a promise for us. I think that's a great thing. He tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When a soul is really seeking, and, and I challenge people on this, are you really seeking after God? Because the Bible talks about those that have a form of godliness. They look godly. They may talk the, the lingo or the language of, of being a Christian. But are you really seeking after God? You know, David, he was, he was a horrendous sinner like all of us. But God said to him, here's a man that is seeking after my own heart. If you're really seeking after God, he's going to reveal himself to you. And it really says, as you draw near to me, he says, I'll draw near to you. I don't look at that as like we're running towards Christ and we have to meet him at some point where he's going to meet us. He knows our mind. He knows our thought. I usually say, once we make that action and turn towards him, he's there. He's there with his arms open. And he says, here's my grace. Here's my wonderful gift of grace for you. And so as we seek after him, He's already there. And so he says, draw near, near to me, and I will draw near to you. And that's, a, like I said, an invitation for us to even know that. You can come close to me, but it's a promise is that he's going to be there. So we draw near by worship, by praise, by prayer. And so worshiping is just recognizing him for who he is. He is the God of all creation. He has created you and me. He is the one that controls everything that is going on. There is nothing that happens in this world or any world that he has not allowed. He is in control of those things. When we talk about this world being out of control, which it seems like, it doesn't take God by surprise at all. In his sovereignty, he knows what is going on. And so we worship him for who he is. He is the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. He is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. I worship him for that. I praise him. I thank him. I thank him not only for the blessings in my life, but for the storms in my life. Because if I, as I go through these storms, they make me strong. And they make me more dependent upon him. Because when I get in a storm, when I get in a valley, I look to him. And they say many times, trees' roots grow deeper during a drought. See, sometimes when we're in that valley, we're going through that struggle. It's an opportunity for our roots to go deeper and to get deeper into him. And then in prayer. So you have friends, you have family. How do you grow those relationships? By communicating. So we go to God in prayer. We don't just go and give him our list of things and say, see you later. No, we pour out our heart to him and then we listen to him. And we have that, that dialogue that goes back and forth. That's really what prayer is. We're not only just pouring it out, but we're listening and we're watching to see what God has to say. That's how friendships flourish. Is One day I may need you to listen to me, but the next day you may need me to listen to you. And the same is with God. We need to listen to him as well as to give him the thoughts that are in our heart. And so we draw near to God that way. We draw near when we seek the counsel of God. So we draw near to him when we say, you know, Lord, what is your way? What is it that you desire? What is it that is pleasing to you? Because that's what I want to do. And as we seek that counsel and we really seek to, to walk closer to God, we're going to see that we are drawing near to him. And the final is communion with God. And the way I like to uh, describe communion is it's just almost like a oneness. So in the Gospels, when it talks about we're grafted into the vine, and it says, as you are in the vine and I am in the Father, we are one. It's just like that. We know the presence of God because he's living through us. And that's what Jesus said. 
I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit that's going to dwell in us. And so that communion with God is I know that the Spirit's in there because it testifies with my spirit. I can feel your presence, God. I can feel your conviction. I can feel your edification. I, can, I know that you are alive in me. And all those things, again, are in agreement with his word. And the one thing that drawing near to me and I'll draw near to you shows is sort of the change from the old covenant to the new covenant. Because in Moses in the old covenant, remember the burning bush scene? He told God, he said, stop, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. But in the New Testament, he says, what? Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. What was the change on that? Well, the change was the ground between the Old Testament and the New Testament was paved with the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid that price and he provided that way. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we can draw near on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. And then he goes on to tell us that God, what does God want to do for us, the sinner? Well, the thing is, he doesn't just say, draw near to me and I'll save you. He doesn't say, just draw near to me and I'll forgive you. Though both those things are true. Really what God is saying through this is that he wants to be near to us. We need to, to get the concept of God as somewhere far, far away, this, this, you know, this spiritual entity that's so far away. God says, I want to be near to you. I want to have fellowship with you. I want a relationship with you. I want to dwell in you. We need to understand that, that God is not some <coughs> high in the sky, far away type of a God. He is a God that wants to be with us and dwell with us and, and, and walk with us. We sing another wonderful hymn from time to time. He walks with me and he talks with me. You know, that is our God. He, he desires that. And that's why he initiated that through his son Jesus. It's not that we were just down here on earth and saying, you know what? I'd like to have a relationship with whoever did all this stuff. No, God created us to have relationship with one another and with him. And so drawing near to God helps us resist the devil as we draw near to him. It gives us that strength to stand in our faith. It also helps us to become pure. Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. We know that we're never going to be perfectly holy in this life, but we can be holier than what we are today if we keep our eyes on him and keep following. And so it helps us to become pure. It helps us to sorrow over our sin, to really realize the brokenness of our sin. You know, sin today sometimes is talked about so lightly and so glibly, but really as we draw near to God, we see how our sin is in the eyes of God. Our sin is an offense to him. And it saddens him and it sorrows him and it should sorrow us also. Drawing near to him helps us edify others. We're in this world where we like self-edification. Again, you know, you go out on Facebook, you see a million selfies of, you know, it's always ourself and wherever we're at and it's always about me and what I'm doing. The world is sort of like that. We have magazines out there called Self, Self and Me and, you know, go for the gusto, go for all you can. It's all about you. The world is that way. But when we draw near to God, we find ourselves that we can lift others up, that we can encourage others by the grace of God. We want reconciliation for people, and we want them to be blessed with what we've been blessed with in our relationship. And it also helps us to think of eternal things. A lot of people in this world don't want to think about eternal things. They're either scared about what lays beyond, or they're unsure about what lays beyond, or they know what lays beyond, and they don't want to face that. 
But for the believer, isn't that a wonderful thing to think about what lays beyond this life? We struggle. There's hurts. There's divisions. There's all these things that, that muck up our life and our world. And yet, Jesus says, I have gone to prepare a place for you. And where I go, you will come. And it's going to be just a wonderful place to be for all eternity. And so it helps us to think about these eternal things. And then James ends up saying this, clean your hands or cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. And so he does tell us that there is a, there's, there's a thing that we are to do. You know, if I'm out working in the garden, my hands are dirty and it's supper time, I got to wash my hands. I got to realize that my hands are dirty and I got to get them clean. And so he says, cleanse your hands. Get away from the sin in your life. If you know that you have those things in your life, put them away. Purpose in your heart to follow him. And so purify your hearts. Get your minds right with God again. And, and as we do that, as our mind is stayed upon him, he's going to be speaking to us. Otherwise, he's calling us double-minded, hypocrites. And we don't want to be that. We want to stand right in the sight of God. He says, lament and mourn and weep. It's sort of a heavy story. And those, those uh, words, lament, mourn, and weep, are really from the Hebrew prophets that, that really, when they talked about repentance, when they talked about these things, they anguished over those things in their life. Do we anguish over the sin in our life? No matter how small or how big, I mean, sin is sin. Do we really anguish over those areas where we fall short? You know, we had our men's breakfast yesterday, and, and we had a great devotion that was a challenge to men. Do we really think about the things that, that we are doing? And he was talking about husbands and wives. Do we think about those things? And so he tells us, lament and mourn and weep. And as we draw near to God, we're convicted of those things in our life. As we spend time in his word, as we spend time in prayer, we're going to grieve and weep as is appropriate. You read the Old Testament, or not the Old Testament, the old, the old Bible commentators, man, they talked about, man, they were down on their knees. They were prostrate. They were saddened by the sin in their life. Are you saddened by the sin in your life? Are you seeking the cleansing that is found only at the cross of Jesus? He says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. As we come before a holy God, he will lift us up. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That wonderful gift of grace, that undeserved favor of God, that always lifts people up. His grace will always lift us up. It's going to lift us to a higher level. It's going to lift us to better relationships and, and better marriages and better friendships. When we let God's grace cover us, and then fill us. And as we share God's grace with those around us, we find that blessing. Do you know that blessing of being lifted up and edified by Christ? Are you going through a struggle now in your life where you need God's grace maybe more than you ever did? Have you just been struggling with sin in your life for so long that it's just worn you down? God says you can find that reprieve. We come to the foot of the cross, we lay it there, and we purpose in our hearts to follow him. He's not going to leave you there alone. He's going to give you that strength to succeed in the things that he has called us to do. Are you willing to do that? Do you have that humble and contrite spirit in your life that says, God is right. When I'm in disagreement with God or God's word, I realize right off I'm wrong and he's right. I just say, Lord, change me. Change me to what you would have me to be. Let's, let's pray.